0: Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, our best sale of the year is coming up on Black Friday. During the sale, you can save 20% on all of my online courses, you get additional discounts if you buy more than one, and we are sending you a free workbook with every course purchase. The sales stacks again, so again, you can get an additional percentage off if you buy more than one, and you'll save even more. I hope you'll take advantage. Welcome, everybody. Um, we're going to be talking tonight a little bit about navigating um, midlife crisis, and um, I'll just... Talk for oh, actually, I'm going to give some announcements first. That um, I'm going to read you. There's so many that I need to reference Christy's text here. One second. <laughs> um, so many things going on. Um, okay, we finally have an app. Okay, now, I think some of you may already know that, but this is something that if you want to watch the courses online, and Christy, just feel free to speak up and tell me all the features and things that you probably are more intimately aware of than I am.
1: I didn't read my pun, so I'm a little hurt, but. We're absolutely excited that the app is now available. Sorry,
0: Christy, I missed that. Okay. And uh, so it's available in the App Store. Obviously, it's free to download it, but you can access any of the content you have, room for two. Um, It's all there for you. And you can also download either audio or audio and video for the courses. So if you're going on a trip and you want to listen to it or you're going on a jog and you, you don't want to be connected to you know don't want to be dependent on internet or something you can download it onto your phone um and we're going to be adding more and more features there to bookmarks which we know is a big ask Um, Which is coming we have been told many times. (laughs) Okay. All right. Also, 3 events on the calendar for 2024. So far, There are going to be more, but we have 2 couples tours and we're now accepting deposits for those and the couples tours are European events. There's 1 in April that's starting in Barcelona, going up to coastal France and a 2nd, 1 that starts in Milan, Italy and goes up into Switzerland through the Alps. Um, So. Um, that one is a little more expensive just because it's Switzerland and the only thing expensive in Switzerland is cheese but um, so those two are available I think they're maybe about half full already but but um, we just now kind of made it as a public announcement so if you're interested in that get in there quick we have three mini courses that are now available on the website and they're a lot less expensive because they're shorter briefer but they're kind of deep dive, quick dives, basically, into a way of thinking, like how to think about what's happening within infidelity, how to make sense of what's happening in the marriage. Um, and some of these may develop into longer courses, but just there's a, been enough need for some more immediate direction and perspective that we have decided to make a series of mini courses that help people in the immediate sense. We also have, I don't know why it's all Arriving today, but (laughs) Uh, we have upgraded the how to talk to your kids about sex course. It's now a lot significantly longer. Uh, The last time I did the course was in 2015. So it was in need of an upgrade. Um, And so that new and improved course is now on the website. All right. So let's talk a little bit about midlife crisis. And I am certainly going to be open to your questions and thoughts tonight. Midlife crisis. So basically, you know, I, let me just read a few of the questions that have come in. So I can just give you a little bit of the context of, of what people are trying to sort through. Um, this person says, the concept of a midlife crisis usually comes with a negative connotation, running off with a secretary sailing around the world or impulsively buying a Porsche that's not in budget. James Hollis and others frame the changes that people experience at this time as the 2nd, half of life, how can we use this pull We feel to improve our lives without blowing them up. Oh, that's an interesting question. How can we use the pull We feel to improve our lives without blowing them up. Okay. That's a good question. I'm going to come back to that 1. uh, this is another 1. I'm in a mid, I'm in midlife and sometimes it feels like everything is just unraveling. I've majorly reevaluated my faith in recent years, and so that felt quite terrifying, but the world in general just feels like it's falling apart. It does. I feel a lot of angst and existential dread. I'm just curious. Is this just par for the course for someone in their middle life? Do older Did older generations feel like everything was falling apart when they were 40? Does everyone question the traditions and customs from their childhood when they are 40? This person is having a a early midlife crisis or is the world actually more chaotic and overwhelming now? It just feels like so much. Okay, I'm going to just maybe read 1 more so people can get a feel for the questions. Then I'll come back to these specific ones. My big frustration in midlife is that I set up my entire life in 1 mindset to provide the maximum amount of income I could for my family. But now I'm in a completely different mindset. I want to make a difference in the world and have an impact and do something that matters. But logistically, I'm not set up to do so. I'm specialized in what feels like a meaningless line of work and pays the bills. And our family setup is such that we depend on this income. It just feels like nothing I do is, uh, is important or will ever make a difference. And I'm re- really struggling to find meaning and fulfillment in that. But I feel trapped in a life that I set up for myself 20 years ago. So I'll read other questions as well later. But I think that really kind of captures some of the discomfort and angst that people feel around midlife um or can feel anyway and are trying to sort out what's happening so i think that first of all not everybody goes through it and i imagine if you lived in egypt in you know 2000 bc culture was so consistent and standard and normal and changed so little that there may have been less angst and anxiety about the world than I think we are currently experiencing. There's so much evolution and change. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. We've been putting together a film about my mom's life and so on, and just looking at how different the world is from when she was even growing up. But even in the last two decades, right, the ways that we get, you know, um, would say, communicated with one another, Telephones. I mean, it's just the world is evolving so quickly or changing so quickly. And I think we're also in a particularly chaotic time. There is a feeling of dread that I think a lot of people are having that's sort of outside of the realm of normal midlife challenges. Um, and so I think people are, if they're paying attention, are managing a much stronger, keener sense of uncertainty and anxiety. Um, than say we were even a decade ago when things seemed more stable culturally, societally, politically. Um, But I do think that loss on some level is a pretty normal part of the human developmental experience if you're paying attention or if you're like most people. And so if you look at developmental literature about this, there's in the kind of first half of life, we are in the process of forging a self. We are creating, doing, borrowing from our culture, borrowing from our family's expectations to forge a self that is legitimate in the world. And um, and so we're very much in this place of creativity, generativity, and hope. Right? And I'm going to go do all these difficult things, and it's going to provide a life for me, and I'm going to marry this great person. and then I'm going to have these kids, and I'm going to do my life really well, and I'm going to be happy. And there's you know, it's not that there's not setback and difficulty, but there's a sense of hope and possibility, and that you can do things and create a life. You have all this there's an anxiety that comes with all the uncertainty of forging a life. But there's a lot of hope that comes with it and so what i think often happens in the midlife experience is that everything you thought you were creating and doing and on some level that you thought was going to get you above the human condition that was going to on some level make you invulnerable not just less vulnerable because you're creating something But actually invulnerable. So, like, if, and and nobody really believes it, maybe, well, some people do, but I'm saying there's a sense of if I'm successful enough, if I do it well enough, if I read all the parenting books, right, if we, you know, obey all the commandments, if we do everything right, we're going to, you know, prevail, we're going to be okay. And I think what happens in midlife for people is they start to confront loss and disillusionment. I followed all the things like, how did I wind up here? Right, so I have so many of the people that come to see me are in that state of disillusionment and loss. Like I, you know, I followed, everything to the T, what I was asked to do, and my husband still had an affair on me, right? Or I did all the things for my kids, but my kids are leaving the church. And, you know, I brought them to all the meetings. We, We had scripture study. I bore testimony, and yet they don't find it helpful or relevant in their lives. And this kind of, okay, and even if things go relatively well in terms of your kids' You know, doing what you think they should do, or your kids are living, you know, good lives. There's still a deep sense of loss when you get to that place where your kids are no longer home. They no longer need you. Uh, your parents are dying. There's there's just a loss of that creative and generative period in your life, and you're starting to look at the second half, and it's confronting loss, death um deterioration and maybe an acknowledgement of what we don't control how much we don't control and how vulnerable we really are and um i don't think many of us pass through that happily (laughs) i i think it's very sobering very humbling and in many ways Essential, if you look at the work of Richard Rohr, for example, or James Hollis, or many important scriptural stories, that loss is fundamental to spiritual development, to finding something deeper and richer inside of us that we maybe couldn't come to without the sobering reality of what we really cannot control of recognizing how vulnerable we are how precious life is you you know i'm you know currently confronting how difficult mortality is because my mother is is in the last weeks of her life and um it's horrible it's just horrible to confront losing someone so precious to me and to my life. And it's also precisely what opens my heart up to how precious life is and makes me appreciate the people around me more deeply and makes me, keeps me, pushes me to be humble and, um, clear-minded about how vulnerable we all are and um, I I hate it I I don't really want those lessons to be honest (laughs) but nonetheless those lessons are there and I think they are what potentially allow us to be kinder more humble more loving people Um, and so I think Richard Rohr's idea is basically if we didn't have to confront mortality, didn't have to confront death, that we probably would never really learn the lessons that our souls need um, of how to lead our lives with compassion in our shared vulnerability as people. But that loss period, that loss of Yeah, I remember when my children were kind of sort of suddenly, because of COVID, exiting the house or my youngest was now going to go to a boarding school and, you know, my sons were going off to school and I, I was just, I remember being, standing in the garage and seeing the kids' bikes and it was just seemed so sudden that those bikes, we weren't going to be out riding them anymore that all the things we'd done it was now basically past or passing and the devastation of that like just kind of like we've been a family doing all these things and now suddenly it was different and it wasn't going to ever be precisely the same and that sense of of how fleeting and quickly it goes it is is very painful and um I think makes you really look for the one stable thing, which is just loving and caring for one another uh, as best we can in the face of so much loss. So, anyway, I think like I'm a little bit of a downer today. I, I, I um, have been confronting loss a lot lately. So, I think that um, I think that, in Richard Rohr's terms and James Hollis's terms, again that that loss is critical that we need it, that our souls need it. Some of us resist it, and instead we, you know, leave our family, we get the car we can't afford, we do reckless things, sometimes it's a stereotype and, you know, a lot of people are not doing that. But a lot of times there's this struggle to try to hang on to something you had when you were younger instead of letting life push you along and grieving what you don't have control over and finding something deeper and more honest in you. I was just working with a couple that's going to be on Room for Two uh, soon, and, you know, that's very much been his process of of, he was successful, he was able to, um, you know, master everything, be at the top of his class, make a lot of money, and just Feeling like I can get the world to yield to me, but in the process of that, not really loving his wife, wanting his wife to yield to him, wanting his wife to be the kind, wanting her to be the kind of person that would fit into his plan, resenting her when she wasn't and so on. And really the life, the the marriage coming to such a crisis point and such a sort of lack of any intimacy or warmth that he has started to go into the fall of I've had my ladder on the wrong wall. I've been clamoring to create something that's not really yielded what I thought it was going to yield for me. And I have to face regret and grief and fear that not only have I wasted so much time and believed in false idea of what I was creating, but I have to also confront my own um, anger at myself. Can I forgive myself? Can I forgive us? Can I pick up and move forward with a little more wisdom, with a little more sobriety about who I actually am and be a better, kinder person in the face of so much loss? I think that's really what the challenges that one faces is how do I go forward as a better, more refined human being not denying life's complexity and the losses, but still creating beauty in the face of them.
1: I have yeah. a question, Jennifer. Sure, please. I'm the one that's burdened by by being 40 and midlife. Yeah, you're you're precocious midlife. Yeah, I know. But one thing that I think is really tricky is in the face of all this chaos in the world, is to maintain optimism for my teenage kids. I feel like when I was their age. I was excited the world was opening before me and now I'm like this cynical, like the world is harsh and loss and all that, you know, like I feel like with this new perspective. To deal with that and cope with that, but still. Put on a break. Mm-hmm. I have told you my mom's life advice is life is tough and then you die. I don't want to have that attitude towards my kids. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, just,
1: like. Do you have any thoughts about that balance of how we how we still carry optimism and hope? In the face of a very stressful world. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Well, I I think I mean, well, first of all, there's only so much we can control, it and and very difficult things could happen. Um, you know, I think societal stability is is an open question at this point. Um, and our kids, we may confront difficulties that that could be very difficult and very painful. But I think that what I think is important is that the fact that my children, I, we all are still agents in the world. That even though we have many things we don't have control over and the world isn't what we wish it were, I and they continue to make a difference. We're not gonna get away from loss. We're not gonna get away from tragedy, right? As Adam Miller says, we don't get out of this thing alive. Um, And that's just a given. I think the more we can actually kind of deal with that, in some ways, the more that optimism feels real and truly hopeful. It's not a denial of loss, but that what I do matters, that what I, how I handle a world that is uncertain and has a lot of darkness in it, it matters more than ever that I do what's good. It matters more than ever that I'm kind to the person who's right across the counter from me that I don't know. It matters more that I smile at the stranger on the street because the world is so hungry for kindness. And that my kids can do that too. And that my kids can bring their gifts and their abilities and they're going to be up against those same questions of how they're going to handle the adversity, both in the world and within themselves. But. Can I model for them that it makes a difference when I'm courageous? It makes a difference when I try to do what I can do and don't let what I can't do hijack me and take me over. And says, I, yes, I remember being angry at my parents for hiding things from me. Now I realize how much we hide from our children just so as not to discourage them. It's a part of loving care. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think that's true. In some ways, what we can hide from our kids is things like not, not giving them a world that's so overwhelming that they can't handle it. You know, that we're, we're trying to keep the world's darkness from them for a while. But uh, obviously, as parents, the more we can help them metabolize the darkness or get more uh, able to hold on to what is good and to hold on to what creates light in the face of darkness that's our spiritual challenge as human beings is what allows me to find a place of hope and of goodness and of love in a dark in an often dark world and in and in, and in, in myself that you know we can also create suffering we can create darkness in our own lives and in our relationships and so it's having the courage to choose what creates good it's having the courage to hope not against reality but in line with reality it's Christy, Christie, a data driven book that helps me maintain a positive outlook on the world is Factfulness by Hans Rosling. It's more micro, uh, macro than Jennifer's answer, but shows how the world is full of light. Oh, that's cool. It says a crisis suggests a massive mismatch between the map we are navigating the, the map we're navigating off of and the actual terrain. Yes. Is there any way to preemptively prepare for such potential mismatches, or is this just the way life works? It's both. And there is no way to preemptively soften the shocks of life. It's both things. I mean, there's no way you can download a map of reality to a mind that's five years old. It's not even prepared to handle that, and it needs a simpler world. It needs a more black and white world because our cognitive development doesn't, it grows through disillusionment. That's that's actually how human development happens, is the map of that you have ruptures based on the reality you're confronting. And that's why humility matters so much, is I'm willing to tolerate the discomfort of reworking my map, right, and that I'm not going to deny reality to keep my map intact. That's what many of us do. We resist. We say, screw reality. I want the map I have, and I'm just going to be angry at reality because it's messing with the view of the world and myself that I desire. Humble people, it's a virtue because it keeps you open to what life has to teach you about itself and about you. And so, um, you know, some of the work by um, give me a second, Piaget, Piaget's work was, you know, you watch these videos of kids that are developmentally being asked a question that's outside of their level of development. And for the kids where it's way too far outside, they're just, they answer based on the map of reality they have and they're wrong, but they're completely comfortable because they don't even know how far off they are. Um, But the kids that are just about to enter into the developmental level that the question requires, you see them get very distressed because they know the answer they have is wrong, But they can't yet figure out the right answer. And what's happening is their brain is trying to accommodate more reality and it's uncomfortable and it's distressing. And so they have videos of Piaget's research where these kids are like trying to figure it out and they can't and they are a little distressed. And, uh, you know, they eventually do. But that's how it works in the work that I do with people as well. You know, I'm giving them information about themselves and about how they're impacting their marriage that's outside of their current view, right? So just somebody I was working with today, it's like he wanted to label what he was doing as unhelpful, and I said, no, it's indecent. It's not just unhelpful, it's mean, right? And his mind wanted to put it in one frame because it keeps him at, in equilibrium with his current map. And I'm like, no, you've got the wrong map of who you are as a husband and you know to his credit he was willing to tolerate the truth of that and to let his mind accommodate more reality about himself and about his negative impact on his marriage and that is the process of development and it shows us really how were the lilies of the field it shows us how limited our impact is which is different than that we have no impact that we have no agency but we don't often have what we thought and so the question going back to this of uh, there's there's a certain amount that's developmental on the other hand we sometimes as parents and as teachers and so on we want the world of innocence we want a world that doesn't have to address complexity and so we can sometimes give our kids give ourselves a worldview that is almost defiantly mismatched like i don't want complexity i want to pretend the world is different than it is and so we can prepare our kids for complexity or we can deny it and then You know, we all confront disillusionment, but some people confront disillusionment in a much harsher way, right? Disillusionment with their faith, disillusionment with, you know, for example, I had a client whose mother, she wanted to go to college. The mother hadn't, the mother discouraged it, I think, because in part the mother was looking for some validation of her own life choices. So the daughter obeyed, in a sense, trusted didn't go get a degree had multiple children like the mother did even though the daughter had other wishes for herself but she was trying she was basically questioning herself and trusting in the authority of her parents thinking this would make her safe it would get her at least the validation of the group and then her husband cheated on her and left And here she had multiple children and no degree. And that sense of anger, you know, that I trusted, believing that that was going to yield for me a safer world, that if I just deferred, that I was going to be given protection, that I wasn't going to have to deal with life's complexity on my own. And while it's always true that if we live our lives uh, in in line with true principles, we're going to be safer, right? You know, if if we're living in ways that have withstood the test of time, right, culturally, we're going to be in a better position, right? But, so it's not that, that people older than us don't often have wisdom for us to borrow and to glean from and to comply with because it's wise to. But that's very different than if I do it, I don't have to take on the burden of my own agency and to determine my life. And when we have been sold that idea that we don't need to worry and we just need to comply for the validation of the group, well, then we can be unprepared because we were pressured to validate the view that others wanted us to validate. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Okay. So let me just take up a few of the questions here to make it maybe a little more concrete. Um. Okay, so going back to this one, the concept of the midlife crisis usually comes with a negative connotation running off with a secretary sailing around the world, impulsively buying a Porsche. That's not in the budget. Okay, James Hollis and others frame the changes that people experience, um, at this time as the 2nd, half of life how can we use this pull we feel to improve our lives without blowing them up? Yeah, so I, I think the kind of stereotypical midlife crisis, that idea of doing kind of reckless things is, is is, is I think, and I, I mean, I may be wrong, I haven't had so many of these clients that are really that reckless, but I think it's often this denial of death, um, a denial of loss, it's like a refusal, I was watching the movie. What's it called? Moonstruck, I think it is. And um, and the father in the story is having an affair, and the the wife is trying to figure it out. And you know, the wife is trying to understand what's happening with her husband. And you know, she kind of comes to this conclusion in her conversation with someone that her husband is trying to fight off death fight off loss, and this is sort of a grab at youthfulness, at, you know, life is, is, a, is a new possibility, and yet one that can be destructive to the life we're living. So I think that there can be that defiance. There can be that reaction to it, that we, we won't let life teach us. We resist what is, in fact, real. Or we are grabbing for a kind of baseless hope rather than a more grounded hopefulness. I think when we allow it to make us better, we're allowing, I know this sounds so discouraging perhaps, but the humiliation that's in it to happen, the acknowledgement of how limited the power is that we have. And you can more deeply cherish the people around you. I, I see it very much in my mom where, you know, with my own kids, I can be more like, wait, have you done that? Did you get that done? You know, I, I'm, I'm in that role of, of critique on, on some level, not, not a thing that I'm proud of, but that I can easily move into that. And my mom, who's always been very good at this, but I think especially as she's confronting the end of her life, Is so much aware of just the preciousness of people and of my children and all of the, her grandchildren that she just genuinely celebrates the good she sees in them, the, the the capacity she sees in them, the beauty she sees in them. And she just is able to cherish it with all of her heart because from her perspective, she sees like the truth of it, the truth of what's there. um, And that. Loss has a way of getting us very focused on what really matters, and and that would be improvement. You know, a lot of times people can confront the loss in their marriage to start learning how to love for the first time. Um, you know, this is what I would think of as the first half and the second half of life. I don't know James Hollis's work well, um, but the way I would think about it, and I think it's probably how James Hollis thinks about it is, is the external reference is what we're doing in the first half of life, that reflected sense of self, external authority, right? We're looking to others to tell us we're okay. We're out trying to earn our sufficiency. We're trying to prove ourselves in the world. And there's this idea that if I do it well, I will master something and I will have something. Um, And that's important. It's not like we shouldn't be doing that. That is first half of life tasks are essential. We we need them for our development. We need to, to forge yourself. We need to develop capacity. But there's often the illusion in it that I'm king of the world, that I'm going to master everything, that I'm going to get everything I want. And second half of life is when you realize that simply is not true. And that the life, that the world is not going to give you or yield to you all the things that you think it should. And you start to confront loss. And that often pressures to go from an external authority to an internal authority. James Hollis quote, in book after book and therapeutic hour after hour. We just started over, sorry. In book after book and therapeutic hour after hour, I have asserted that the primary task of the so-called second half of life is the recovery of personal authority. So starting to no longer look to how I'm going to get something through keeping everyone happy with me and more deeply to the question of who am I and what do I value and what do I want my life to be about and that that in the face of the sobering realities of life often becomes a much more focused question of what is my legacy going to be? Who am I going to be? Uh, No longer trying to please everybody, but more deeply trying to be at peace with yourself in the choices that you make. And again, it's a sobering and difficult transition, and some people refuse to make it. You know, I, I know of grandmothers who were still persecuting their children and grandchildren in the pursuit of their ego demands, even at 80 years old, right? That They just hadn't let life grow them up at all. It's a very hard way to live. I don't recommend it even slightly. Uh, much easier is to let life shape you and turn you into a, a really solid soul. Let me just see what some people are saying. Uh, as life has infinite complexity, we can zoom in and out. Infinitely on infinite possible subjects or concepts, the ability to join in tell and live expansive but bounded agreements about reality is necessary for functional human relationships and sanity. That's true. Dialing in the appropriate amount of complexity for a given situation or life stage is next level life skill. I I agree with that, right? So it doesn't mean you have to be, I mean, I've heard it said, you know, that spiritual capacity is related to how much of reality we can take in and handle, uh, how much truth we can truly accommodate but I do agree very much that this is a first half of life reality. Like we ha- we have to be embedded into something. Um, a lot of people are resentful that they were born into the LDS Church and then learned certain mores and concepts that, as they grew, they found to be too limited. But that's very much what human experience is. You're embedded into a social reality that has its mores and customs and objectives and ideas, and they will always be limited. Now, some are more limited than others. Some are more abusive and some are more loving and grounding, right? So I don't mean that all are the same, but that's how we must start out. We need a language, we need concrete, we need black and white when we start out. And then as we grow, we get more and more able to work within Uh, how much complexity can we take in? How much complexity can I take responsibility for? So yes, we are often trying to navigate the level of complexity that our minds and souls can handle. But I think it's when we are actively denying complexity or we're denying truth that our souls need for us to grow and become stronger and better people. Um, Jung said something like, "What what we most need to know is often hiding where we least want to look. So that is to say we're often denying truth that would push our souls to expand and grow, but because we're so afraid of the fall that comes with it, the loss that comes with it, that we will resist it to our own peril.
1: Let's see, it says, as I get older and start to realize how finite my remaining time is, how do I manage the frustration that my relationship isn't good and my spouse doesn't feel the same sense of urgency in repairing it that I do? What mm-hmm. do I communicate to her?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, those are such hard questions. I mean, I don't. You know, that's just one of the hard things about life is we only get control over ourselves. Um, I thought Satan's plan was a pretty decent one, but <laughs> the desire to control others, <laughs> uh, I can understand. But I think that um, it really comes down to maybe two things. I think a lot of times we live non-intimately because we don't want to confront the loss and the risk of living more intimately. And by intimately, I mean being more truthful about what you desire, more truthful about your sense of loss in the marriage, more truthful about who you really are and and then I think the second heart. So I think that means we're up against a certain vulnerability, and usually we tend to be quiet and resent that our spouse is indifferent than they are, rather than, in many ways, being intimate enough, honest enough, to push the relationship to deal with more truth. Now that doesn't mean your spouse will do it, or, and depending on if you're, you know, how you're handling being truthful in the relationship will shape how your spouse responds. But it's also like, how am I going to make choices that I can live with and respect in the face of not having the options that I desire? Like, right, so some people will be up against the option of being in a marriage that's not very alive, not very intimate, we're leaving a marriage that's not very alive and not very intimate and tolerating the losses and the ruptures that that would create and i don't know what the right answer is for people but that's so much about personal authority and what can i really choose so much of choosing is dealing with what losses we can really live with best and um hold our dignity and our self-respect in the face of those choices and and oftentimes it is metabolizing loss and grief um, because we still think it's the best choice among our our choices um okay does that mean telling my wife what i think she's doing wrong (laughs) um i don't know if it's quite that of course, because you you should take the S Y R course, but, <laughs> but it might be more being more honest about. Where what you think and feel in the relationship and what you really want. Um, you know, a lot of us say we want something while our behavior is actually undermining its possibility and we get kind of caught in our own self righteous idea that we're standing up for a good marriage while we're actually undermining its possibility. So if you really want it, it means daring to live more intimately and vulnerably in the marriage and daring to really pursue in a, in an honest way, what you desire, but it will stretch you if you're, if you're doing it honestly, right. That's very different than, you know, you're, you're the, you're the wrong kind of person. And I really wish you'd grow up and catch up with me. That's a fantasy. Um, And so if you're really standing up for something better, it's in an, Of itself will be soul stretching for you, even if your spouse doesn't join you in that. Okay, let me go back to the questions. This person says, you know, my big frustration in middle life. Is that I set up my entire life in 1 mindset to provide the maximum amount of income I could for my family. But now I'm in a completely different mindset. I want to make a difference in the world and have an impact do something that matters but logistically, I'm not set up to do it. I'm specialized in what feels like a meaningless line of work and pays the bills. And our family setup is such that we depend on this income. It just feels like nothing I do is important or will ever make a difference. And I'm really struggling to find meaning and fulfillment in that. But I feel trapped in a life that I set up for myself 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, these are very hard things. And many people, I think, confront these realities of feeling like, you know, I made choices back when I was younger that I now have to live in, the consequences of, and I'm unhappy in them. And it's a hard thing. It's hard to forgive our younger selves. It's hard to forgive life for being finite. Um, It's hard to tolerate living life on life's terms. and what i would say is that it still is pushing you to be an agent in your life and that is to say given that i have created this reality that we have these economic commitments that i've created skill in an in a domain that doesn't fulfill me right what choice do i make in the face of that and the reason why I think it matters is because if we just resent what we don't have control over, the resentment will eat us up in addition to the unsatisfying work. It, to live life well is to tolerate, I did that, I have to forgive it, okay? Like I was in a mindset that made me make these choices, but I see the world differently now. And so what do I need to do now to make peace with my life? Is it tolerating that I'm not going to be in a line of meaningful work and I think it's still important enough or good enough to continue in the work I'm doing, even though I don't find it very satisfying? But of my choices, it's the one I can live with? Or do I need to talk to my partner about downsizing and me going back to school or me doing something differently? Right? What is the choice that I really can live with? Agencies. You know we all love it in theory but it's it's the courage to really take responsibility for what we do have control over and really tolerate what we don't and it gets it's very easy to resent what we don't have control over and not actually take responsibility for what we do and i think that's again a hard way to live um and so again it's living life on life's terms is what am I going to do in my life with my finite amount of influence and choices, but they are mine to make, and who am I going to be in the face of those? Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to this question. What percentage of the world's work is in and of itself deeply meaningful? Probably not much. I think it's likely a small percentage. Maybe the meaning can come from outside of the workplace. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true, that a lot of it is You know, super meaningful, but I do think there's something to the idea that. You know, finding dignity and value in what we are creating and doing every, everything we do impacts humanity, right? Has an impact shapes the people around us benefits, um, others. I, and. I think, you know, I've told this story before, but. You know, I remember when I was raising my when my child with disability I was in the grocery store with him he was just hysterical it was it just was always very stressful for him to be in that high stimulation environment he was hungry I was trying to get food to get home to get him some dinner and he was just falling apart and you know people would often not understand he had a disability and so they would they would watch us or look at me and I just I just was trying so hard to block out everybody so that I could just be there for him. And I kept saying, it's just another two more minutes and we're gonna get in the car. And I was just trying my hardest to just offer him comfort and, and, and let go of anybody else's judgment. And so we got up to the cash register and I was not making eye contact with her. And I just handed her my credit card and she reached over and she touched my hand. And I looked up at her and she just said, you're just doing a very good job you know like she was basically saying I see you and I acknowledge you and what you're going through and it you know I went into the car and I cried like because it was so kind now she's just checking me out the groceries right but she was doing it in a way where she actually cared about my humanity cared about me this person she'd never seen before and made a difference right and so we We can make a difference no matter what we're doing. My mom was in the hospital and the woman came in that was cleaning the room and she was a gift. She came in and she talked to my mom and she held my mom's dignity and talked to her like soul to soul while she mopped the floor and changed the sheets. And I just was so grateful to this woman who's doing what some might consider menial work but she brought her whole heart to it, and I I thanked her, and I you know I asked her how long she was doing it. She said, I keep trying to quit, I keep trying to retire, but I just have a hard time not doing it because she understood the meaning in what she did, and she created meaning in it by the way she did that work. Um. Yeah, okay. So let me run back here to let me just see if I should read this. Um. Hollis talks about the difference between our job and a vocation, Latin um, word. Yeah, a calling, they can be different. A job puts food on the table. A vocation is what we are called to do with our life's energy and not responding to it can damage our soul. It is our calling as opposed to a source of economic livelihood. Yes the only thing I would say to that is when that's too lofty of an idea, we can really get stuck. Like I have people that sometimes are saying things like, well, I'm just waiting to kind of know what I'm supposed to do in the world. And I tend to think of it as the way you're going to find your larger vocation or purpose is you just get busy and you make a difference in the world. You find problems that matter to you and you do something about solving them. You do something about shaping them. And in that process, you can find the problems you care about most about solving. You develop capacity to be able to solve the world's problems. There are so many ways to find meaning, and I do think we have different gifts and capacities. And um, what some would find as a calling, I would I would be terrible at. I could never do well. Um, but I think that you know God's plan, in my view, is to roll up your sleeves and care about the people around you because you'll find your larger calling in that. Okay, what advice do you have for a couple in middle midlife who are trying to heal from pain and hurt from earlier in their marriage? Things were really rough early on in our marriage, and my partner was neglectful, hurtful, and not interested in changing. It all came to a culminating moment a few years ago when my husband could no longer deny that things needed to change. Things are much better now with the occasional painful slip into the old dynamic, but I feel so much frustration that I didn't stand up for something better earlier on, and for how much time I let slip by, pretending that everything was okay. We are in love, and things are more amazing now than they've ever been but what do we do with all the pain from the past how can we move forward and not mourn all the years we suffered knowing what little time we have left i think you know it's it comes back to the kind of the same idea in my view of again i think forgiveness is important spiritual work it's not just forgiving others it's forgiving ourselves for our own blindness our own Naivete, our own inability to understand things that we now understand through going through the process of life's adversity. And it's easy to say, I should have known it. You know, Christy was just talking about this yesterday. Like when things don't go the way she wants, she will go and berate herself that somehow she should have known, which is, of course, a completely dishonest position. <laughs> Sorry, Christy. I don't It's fun to tease Christy, but it, you know, it's not fair to ourselves. If Christy had known it, she wouldn't have done it. Okay. And so we are always in this process of trying to make decisions based on what we currently think. The person writing this question probably had good reasons for not pushing the issue more. What I mean by that is in her mind and the level of development she was in, she was thinking it was the better course to kind of back off and kind of take what was currently there and. You know, a certain amount of difficulty happened. And then, you know, they went into a crucible. They went into uh, the fall, the loss, and something else emerged in that something stronger, something richer, something more honest. This is what happens in many marriages. But I think it then calls on us to forgive our younger selves for not having known to do better, right? For not yet knowing what you now know. And I just think it's just to be honest and fair to ourselves, to forgive it. We can still feel the loss in it. We can still acknowledge the grief in it. I think that's true in forgiving another person, that, that there was loss, that there was harm in their limitation affecting your life. But in a way, forgiving life for being full of imperfection. And not allowing that fact to keep you from claiming the good and the beauty that is a part of the inherent adversity of living life. And so I think the more we can live in gratitude and acknowledgement, I mean, a lot of times it's our entitlement that really undermines our happiness because we live in some fantasy it shouldn't be this way. We should have figured it out 20 years ago. You know, I shouldn't feel disillusioned. Well, I think that's not really paying attention to what life is and how it goes and how growth happens in people because loss is inherent to it, adversity is inherent to it. And yes, the more we can borrow wisdom, the less we may suffer, but we all suffer in this process. And so the more we can accept that forgive it and claim what is good and beautiful within it, the more joyful we will live, the more joyfully we'll live, the more we can share more beauty, both in our own hearts and in our relationships. Um, you know, again, it's easy to focus on everything that went wrong. I cannot believe the plane sat here for an hour, but we don't think enough, like how amazing that I can get on a plane at all, that I can fly to a place that I don't have to take a handcart and walk across. You know, I'm so upset the washing machine is broken and that I have to go to the laundromat. So much better than having to go down to the creek and scrub it on a scrub board, right? So it's like, what is the lens that we're bringing to our lives? There is so much beauty and good. And so if we don't focus on it, we're not gonna have that light to tolerate the loss that's implicit in living. We need more grief counselors. Grieving is so fundamental. We're so graspy and clingy to things, to stories we've invested in, yeah, to identities, to relational agreements with others. These things are changing all the time and holding them together is how we make meaning in our lives, but endings and changes happen on a ongoing basis and I feel like what's been modeled for me is suppression and stoicism and grit. Yeah, I don't know how to feel, feel into the depths of grief. Um, yeah, well, I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, how do I, what do I say about that? I think it's like having enough compassion for yourself to grieve, to let, grief be okay, to not um, berate yourself for loss uh, and for having feelings about loss. You know, I, I just remember when my child was diagnosed and I was grieving and I would cry in very unexpected places and times, school meetings, I'd be sobbing <laughs> and people would be like, you oh know, my gosh, what do I do? But I never gave myself a hard time about that. It's like, my mind is going to grapple with loss here in whatever way it's going to do it. And I can respect that I have to, that I'm in a process of accommodating a difficult reality and making room for my fear and my uncertainty and my not knowing and my loss. And I respect that process in myself. And, um, and I think that helped me a lot, that I wasn't being hard on myself for grief. Um, I also wasn't trying to get other people to deal with my grief. I was just giving myself room to, to make room for it and to kind of hold the dignity of it. And it sounds like you're saying in your family of origin, there wasn't a lot of that modeled, but I imagine for you, it's, yes, it, it could be finding a counselor to talk to about these things and someone that can make room to really allow you to process what you're feeling. Um, but also just making room for the dignity of, of grief because it is an important part of our growth and being with others that care about you in that is very important too so thank you for being such a good community and good people that are you know striving to live good lives it makes a big difference it does it it makes such a difference to have the courage to embrace what is good and to do good by your people around you it's the only thing we have in a world full of adversity. And so it matters so much, right? It's just, you know, yeah. Sorry, I'll say this quickly, but you know, we got some bad news about my mom this weekend. And so um, I struggled this weekend a lot, you know, for good reasons. Um, but it was my husband's friendship, Christy's friendship. It's so helpful, right? To have people care about you in the face of loss and And so being good to one another is everything. It's all we have. It's all we have. And not only does it buoy up the person who's maybe in the face of loss, but also when we love, we find something stronger in the face of the dark. We need it so badly. Like when I face the darkness of the world, my heart, like I just want to do good because it's the only thing that's the antidote to that kind of, of adversity. So, um, so I respect that in all of you that are, are offering that in your lives and in your relationships. So, okay. I have to run. Thanks everybody. And, uh, I'll talk to you next month. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate review and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr.
1: Jennifer's work.